This episode is in partnership with Authority Magazine. Authority Magazine, a medium publication, is devoted to sharing in-depth and interesting interviews featuring people who are authorities in business, pop culture, wellness, social impact, and tech. Today on Believe in People, we are going to take a deep dive into the world of classical music, opera, and writing. And it all comes from the creative mind of California author Howard J. Smith, whose career path has taken him from books and television to the symphony, and now the opera. Howard seamlessly moves back and forth between the iconic composers and the music they have gifted to the world. Howard, welcome to Believe in People. Well, thank you very much, Amy, and much and Kevin, much appreciate being here. Howard, you have always been a writer, and yet you have a very diverse background. So you went from working in film and television to writing episodes on shows like Who's the If people remember this, I do. Who's the Boss? Uh, different Strokes to writing about Beethoven, Mozart, and Giuseppe Verdi. Could you tell us about that? Uh sure, sure. Um, a little bit convoluted history is that I was dyslexic. I am dyslexic, um, but it's less about reading and reversals there, though it impacts pretty much every part of your life if you're dyslexic, but it's more about being able to process music. Um, so what lands in one part of my brain and is acknowledged can't get to the other part. I can't reproduce sounds, I tone deaf, I can't play an instrument, I can't keep time, I can't dance well, um, but I love music, and I always have. And um, when I was a little kid, my dad used to listen to, he was a you know son of Russian immigrants, used to listen to the classical radio station in New York all the time. Um, I heard everybody as a kid, he'd point this stuff out. Um, we even heard Toscanini's broadcast on NBC which is for me kind of ironic is here I heard the man who was this fabulous conductor giving talks in the United States in the mid-1950s who conducted Verdi's funeral, the music. Um, and that's the last book I'm working on right now. And to have that sort of almost personal connection to something that seemingly happened so long ago, um, this is kind of a fascinating little twist and interesting perk of life you you you, you just described uh, almost um a situation in which making connections sounded very difficult for you to do you said that you know if you read something you know one side of the brain wasn't connected to the other and yet you've had a tremendous connection with music what is it about music that has really resonated with you and connected you I think there's always such underlying passion and brilliance. Um, you know, for example, when I started thinking about writing the Beethoven about 15 years ago, I'm listening to both the violin concerto, which he wrote relatively early in his life, and then the Ninth Symphony, which he wrote three years before his death. He was 99% deaf when he wrote the Ninth Symphony, which is probably the single most brilliant musical creation in all Western musical tradition. Um, how do you do that? How do you find that ability? And I actually could relate to Beethoven's deafness and his inability to hear the brilliance of what he created, except in his own head, with my own inability to process music. 
Um, and it actually gave me a window into Beethoven um, and his frustrations and his anxiety about trying to create and create this life. That was fairly easy, actually, after a while to get into his head. Um, it also helped having read all six volumes of every single letter he ever wrote three or four times over to get a sense of the man and what he's saying and so forth. Um, but again, music was the key. And to understand these, now working on and Verdi, um, it's like listening to these great orchestral pieces. And we're headed to New York next week uh, to hear Nabucco at the Met. Um, and we, since we don't get there very often, we got great seats to hear this, to see this. But it's hearing among these enormous, big orchestral rhythms, little tiny riffs here and there that you know came from listening to a little village band marching down the street with you know a tuba and a couple of trumpets and a drummer in the background. And it just, it comes out of the earth of where these people grew up. Um, and to try to find those things and connect to their lives. Um, and my work is more about their life, not so much the very specifics of their music, um, because I'm clearly not that kind of an expert, but I know their history, I know their lives, um, try to know everything about them and the eras that they wrote in the history, the historical context. It's extremely important for all of these uh, characters. And Howard, what is it about the era and, and these people that inspires you, intrigues you to do to want to do this? Uh, it's a combination of things, starting with, you know, the three people, actually four people I've written about, which is Mozart, Beethoven, Lorenzo de Ponte, who is Mozart's librettist, um, and, and Verdi. So, De Ponte is born 1749, almost exactly 200 years before me, almost contemporary with Napoleon, who was born a year later. And so you have this shaping of history from 1750 to Verdi, who dies 1901. That 150 years is one of the most amazing transformational periods, and again, in Western culture, Western society. We go from a heavily dominated aristocratic reality to one dominated by democracies and countering fascism by the beginning of the 20th century. Um, so there's a lot of not just their lives, but what these people are reacting to in terms of the politics of their time um, and how that impacts not only what they write, but who they are as musicians. In bottom line, these guys were artists. They were working stiffs, all of them. Um, they were not rich. They were not aristocrats. They were not famous um, before they started working. They were just artists like you and me and other writers, producers, painters, musicians, we all know. Um, they struggled their whole lives to make their lives a success, but they had to do it within the context of very politically dramatic times. Um, give you an example, Verdi, the most Italian of all composers, was technically born French. The French controlled Northern Italy in 1813 when he was born and his birth records in the little town of Busseto are written in French. Wow. Interesting. You know, Beethoven had a flea um, where he was living in Bonn, actually flea, but he left Bonn when he was about 20, moved to Vienna. He could never go back to Bonn though because the French had taken that whole side of the Rhine River. Um, so whatever dreams he might have had about going home ended when the politics of the time changed the reality. De Ponte, who was Mozart's librettist, as I mentioned, Ponte was a Jew. 
He was born in a little town of Ceneda in northern Italy. Um, his father wanted to marry an Italian girl when he was, uh, the Ponte was 14. It was actually Emmanuel Conmiano is his real name. Um, so to do that, the family all had to be converted. So his father announces one day, you're Catholic. Next day, he is ripped away from all of his friends from the Jewish community of Ceneda. Um, and he becomes Catholic. He enrolls in a Catholic seminary. Um, the end path to that is to become a priest. He's a man who loved women, loved girls, had girlfriends. He's a priest all of a sudden. And he was a lousy priest who's sent to Venice and for the next 10 years. He's a priest on Sunday and he parties the other six days of the week until he gets thrown out. He becomes friends with people like Casanova, who is his good buddy and his mentor in all things, both writing uh, biographies and in chasing women. Uh, he gets thrown out. He ends up in Vienna a few years later. 1781, he's in Vienna. He meets Mozart. Mozart is at the time living in a rented apartment owned by another converso, a Jew who had converted uh, for political and economic reasons. And they meet, they become very good friends, and they write the three greatest operas of Mozart's career together. Um, none of that would have happened had he not been forcibly converted at age 14. He ends up in New York, by the way, um, in 1805, lives in New York for 30 years, and he is the man who is friends with Clement Moore, who writes The Night Before Christmas. Um, he knows Joseph Bonaparte, who's living in exile. And in that world, he lives in New York for 30 years. He starts the first two opera companies in New York City, which become the precursor to the Met. So here's this little Jewish kid from Chineda who ultimately is the reason we have the Metropolitan Opera in New York City today, which we're going to go visit in a week. Nice. So all this comes full circle at times. Um, you know, in terms of opera, I mean, we think uh, when you talk about the Met, uh, we talk about the Civic Opera in Chicago, where mm -hmm. I live, or, you know, the uh, Palais Garnier in, in Paris, for example. But in the beginning, I mean, opera wasn't really that hoity-toity, or was it? I mean, in terms of communicating, storytelling, I mean, it was kind of our television. It was the entertainment of the day. Right. And it actually required a tremendous amount of skill to project uh, your voice to the audience. There was no, there were no electric Correct. speakers or anything like that. It was really an art form. Correct. Even to this day, opera singers are not typically mic'd, except maybe some you know special concert or something like that for television. But they're not mic'd at all. They have to project to a theater that typically houses fifteen hundred to two or three thousand people, and they do it well. Um, but you're right; it was a, a, two different trends actually combined. And the first was opera was definitely elitist in the very beginning. Uh, it was performed only in the royal courts. Uh, princes and dukes had theaters built in their house. Uh, last year, we, when I was in Italy, we saw one of the earliest in Parma that was a wooden theater that is absolutely stunningly gorgeous inside of a palace. Um, not really used today except for special events, but it's staggering in terms of its size, its beauty, its scope, looking nothing like what's behind us, uh, which, as I think I mentioned, is the uh, Teatro Verdi in Busseto, where Verdi grew up. Um, but 
There was also a street tradition from street theater and the uh, Commedia dell'arte that was very commonplace in villages and theaters. And around, you know, time of Mozart, those two trends started to meet. And so theater and opera, which in its time was like the Super Bowl, uh, except it was every night you could go to the Super Bowl, essentially. It was the big theatrical production for everybody anywhere. Small towns. Again, this is Busetto. This is a small 300-seat theater in the picture behind me. Um, that's a little tiny nowhere town, except Verdi grew up there. They had an opera. Most cities in Italy at that time had opera houses. And that tradition of the street theater and the opera seria, the serious opera that was had been watched by the aristocrats, again, combined at that, that time, and it became an extraordinarily popular entertainment in an era before recording, before much music was actually published and circulated. This was both the entertainment of the aristocrats who sat in the boxes and the common people who sat down below in the main seats. Um, and every town had one, an opera house. And, Just like and, at the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. Right. Exactly, Kevin. And um, by, by all prices were relatively cheaper compared to the Super Bowl. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And think of the the average person was the person who watches it on TV. Well, they got to go actually go to the theater um, and sit in the cheap seats or sit in the upper gallery in a place like uh, La Scala. And, and actually, Howard, just I would want to ask uh, just for our listeners, because we have viewers and listeners, they can't see your backdrop. Can you just elaborate on what that is? Uh, sure. Um, this is a picture behind me. I'm not actually there. It's a picture of the Teatro Verdi, um, which is a 300-seat theater built in the town of Busseto by the town council um, over Verdi's objections. He really didn't think the town needed a 300-seat theater, um, thought it was a waste of money, but they built it anyway. And eventually they named it after him. Uh, and every street in Busseto, by the way, is named after, at this point, a famous conductor, a famous musician. Um, the town thrives on Verdi tourism. Um, I should mention, around the corner from the town of Busseto is a little tiny estate called Corte di Angeli. It is a actually a huge estate. Uh, it's a farmhouse, and it was the scene for Bernardo Bertolucci uh, filming his uh, five-hour epic 1900. And wow. that movie begins with the word Verdi, Verdi's dead. Um, because, and again, the very first time I saw that movie about five or six years ago, very late to get to watch it, um, from the seventies, but it actually, it captured so perfectly that region. I knew it had to be close. And sure enough, we tracked it down. It's technically in Busetto in the town. Um, and we actually stayed there as a B and B in a room that probably housed five families, 10 chickens and 15 pigs. <laughs> um, yeah, luxury, a luxury, uh, you know, bedroom suite to stay there and use that as our base to visit Busetto last year. Um, so again, a lot of these things sort of come full circle, and you're walking through a movie set. They even preserved the barn and some of the rooms that were used in the movie set. And the owner was a child in the movie, and his family were peasants on that farm. But the reason I bring it up is it captures very much the peasant life in that movie that existed actually in Verdi's time and what was going on. And the big events of politics in that era was what's known as the Risorgimento. And it's somewhat akin to the French and American revolutions, except done very Italian, 
backwards. Um, and it was attempt to throw out all of the foreigners who ruled different portions of the Italian peninsula, um, Spanish, French, Austrian, whatever, get all those foreigners out and unite the country that in a way had not been united since the Roman Empire 2000 years earlier. Um, and that movie, I mean, that uh, Risorgimento began as a democracy movement, ended up being led by a king and an aristocracy. And at the end, and this is what I'm getting to in the Verdi novel, is Verdi's questioning it 50 years later as he tracks it in the course of his lifetime. What's next? What's happening? What's really going on? Was fascism and Mussolini uh, into the 20th century? So they're very difficult political times that very much reflect upon what's going on in this country and in the world today, where you find these opposing forces going head to head constantly. And so you're suggesting that there are you're novel. suggesting there are stories in there. Just um, you're suggesting there are stories in there beyond um, someone wants to marry someone else's daughter oh, over the king's disapproval, and there's a sword fight, and uh, and the fat lady sings. You're you're talking about these are sort of testaments to the times. Absolutely, absolutely. They're very much about the times and the circumstances, even though the two completed novels, one on Beethoven, one on Mozart and De Ponte, are done. And Verdi, I'm just about a third of the way through, very, very much influenced and about the political situations of the time and the role of the individual in those circumstances and how artists respond to that. Um, you know, De Ponte, as I mentioned earlier, was a Jew who basically hid his Jewishness under the costume of a priest. And his whole life, he was in costumes. Um, Beethoven was struggled with the very concept of living off the money he earned from the aristocracy. His biggest donor was the Archduke Rudolf, who was the younger brother of the emperor. Um, they gave him lifetime stipends just to be a creative genius, almost like the MacArthur grants today. Um, but he was not of the aristocracy. He was a poor schlub from Bonn uh, who struggled his whole life to keep a roof over his head, pay for his family, and he despised the aristocrats. This was not um, what he believed in. He was actually very much pro-Napoleon when Napoleon was up and coming. And the day Napoleon declared himself emperor, Beethoven was in the middle of writing his third symphony, his very famous symphony, which originally was dedicated to Bonaparte. And he famously took his pen and scratched out Bonaparte's name in the dedication and that torn manuscript still is around to this day. Um, and I've seen copies of it in a couple of different museums that it, it's like, okay, you're gonna be an aristocrat and an emperor, you're not my friend anymore, even though they never actually met. Wow, and I just wanna step back for a second, Howard, because one thing you did say, we talked about opera and community and access, and I just wanna translate that into today's world. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that I find that's really interesting is that there was access, there was the availability for the community of all classes, so to speak, to connect and gather. And yet we make that almost um, uh, really challenging now because access to events and entertainment and community are expensive. So what are we doing wrong? What are we doing? What, what can we do? well, again, it's, it's, it, the challenge is, is extremely complicated. 
Um, for example, I mean, I'm on the board of the Santa Barbara Symphony. It is a challenge enough to simply get, you know, 70, 80 musicians on a stage 15, 20 times a year um, and support that. Ticket sales typically only pay for about a third of the cost of a symphony. So it is up to donors in a community to support another probably third of that. And the other portion is basically grants, advertising income, anything else organizations can do to produce that. Now, an opera is a symphony and a Broadway play put together. It is twice as complicated. Um, the moving parts of putting on an opera, extremely difficult, extremely expensive, um, and you require a full orchestra, you require the full complement. I mean, we're going to see Nabucco at the Met because it is a huge cast and only the biggest operas like Chicago Lyric, we're going to see Aida in the spring, can master and put these on. Um, so it's always a constant fundraising challenge. And COVID was hugely a kick in the butt for all these organizations because people, one, people typically become subscribers, and that's a big portion of your financial base. Um, but subscribers get old, they died, um, and they weren't being replaced by people coming up the age rank, so to speak, um, during COVID. And so a lot of organizations, Met included, um, are all hurting because they can't figure out how to establish enough funding. Even in Italy, a lot of the state support for opera is gone or highly reduced and small communities are struggling uh, to cover the costs. And when things are that expensive, how do you keep it a popular entertainment? It's almost impossible uh, to do that because people go elsewhere. I have to ask you this, uh, and I hope, um, I hope uh, you take no offense, but why do we need the opera? Good question. Um, we, I can say we don't except it's brilliant and it's an ama amazing art form that if you take the time to listen and pay attention and learn it is an absolutely ex stunningly brilliant wonderful art form um that no other art form actually can touch um and so to, to not just preserve it but keep it a live living thing is a big challenge to this day um and it's because it is such a brilliant artistic skill that people are constantly drawn to the sheer beauty and magnificent of it. Um, you know, and also, you know, opera music, we don't realize it is so permeated um, our popular culture. And, you know, you hear a riff, all of a sudden you realize, oh, that's from Carmen. Um, you know, and you hear another melody in a commercial. Oh, that's from the Marriage of Figaro. Mozart did that, you know, it's all over the place. And yet to actually get into a theater and sit down and watch an opera is a challenge and a cost. Um, and a lot of operas go out of their way to make access to students, younger people. Uh, they try to make it as, as inexpensive as possible to get at least get in the door. You might not have great seats. You're not going to sit in one of those boxes, but you're there and you get to hear it and see it. And the other thing is there's nothing in the music world, like live performance. It's not a recording. Um, and to witness and see the musicians working, producing, creating, to see how music moves across through the orchestra, or to see the interplay of voices. Um, again, nothing like a live performance. 
And if you haven't seen one, I recommend you try it out. Exactly. You know, and to that point, I'm, I'm, before we ask our last question, is Howard, is that uh, I was listening to an interview that you had, and I thought this was really interesting, especially for the writers out there, mm -hmm. is that, and and with all the various disciplines, so you have, you know, um, novels and plays and opera and movies, they all require a different lens or a different um, ability to, to watch, listen, and hear. And so you said, and I thought this was really interesting, is that, you know, when you connect with um, a, an opera, it's a, a feeling you're expressing it through song. And right. so yes. novels make you think or have you think, and I'm going to wreck this, I'm sure. Let, let, me, let me rephrase yeah, it for please you. Please do, because um, I think it's interesting. Robert Wise, the famous film director who did The um, Sound of Music, West Side Story, back in the 50s and 60s, was one of my teachers at the American Film Institute as a screenwriting student there years ago. He was an emeritus professor, basically. He also contributed when I did a book on Hollywood, called Open Doors to Hollywood, back in the late 90s, um, about bringing into the industry. But what he said in our class was, we're talking about adapting a story from one art form to another. And he said, a novel is about what people think. You know, you're in the narrator's head of a novel. You can go anywhere in the universe and still be walking down the street. A film, however, is about what people see. So you're sitting in your seat, you're watching what's happening to characters. And that he added a play is about what people say. You're watching them talk. It's basically conversation for two hours. To that, I add the concept that an opera is what people feel in the depths of their lives, pain, beauty, sadness, joy, love, expressed through song. And the greatest operas, the ones that remain popular to this day, capture the genuine feeling of people's lives. And they relate. So when you hear La Traviata and the pain that someone's expressing, the kind of like a blues, a good man feeling bad or a good woman feeling bad or the blues, opera is the same way. You hear this incredible voice expressing either their love, their affection, their pain, driven by some of the greatest music ever written composers ever written um and you feel that emotion and that's the key so if you're adopting adapting something from one form to another you have to remember that lesson and all too many people forget it bad movies bad operas come and i've seen some famous conductors take on like streetcar named desire it's a great play it's a lousy opera i don't care what the music is it's you do not the family apparently did not let them change a word of the play. Well, again, a play is about what people say. You don't need three quarters of those words to capture the emotion. And in, in essence, they lost the emotion because it became boring and wordy in a way that the play was not. Um, and if you wrote a novel called Streetcar, you'd have to completely reconceive it. And unfortunately, too many artists take shortcuts and think, oh, I'll just convert this into a song. Well, I don't care if you're singing about a lemon coke from the corner store i want to hear what you're feeling what it's like to be neglected or pushed aside or be in love um, and that's the strength and beauty of this art form that it touches up uh, in a way that words alone and music alone simply cannot it's interesting i asked you a couple of seconds ago uh, whether or not we still needed opera and i think that answer that you have just provided us uh, to amy's question is is the perfect definition because you don't just go to see it you don't just go to hear it 
you go to experience it and feel it. And I, I think that's probably one of the, or the main reason why I have uh, become so attached to them, not only because of the music, but the emotion that, that you feel sitting in the audience, because, um, because at the end of the day, it's about people. Right. And um, I'm going to ask you the last question because our little podcast is about people. Um, why do you believe in people? Oh, we got. Um, if it, it, I believe there's so many things, actually, it's a really complex question. Uh, but my background, where I come from, what I believe is that each of us has a responsibility, not just to ourselves, but to the community in which we are an integral portion to be the best we can at any given moment in our lives and to figure out how best to move our community, our society, and ourselves as individuals into a healthier, more productive life, environment, community uh, that is more sustaining. And these forces between the individual and the community are things that have been characteristic of human nature since we evolved and probably in, in our predecessors as well. So balancing that in a creative way is I think why we're here um to make it a better place for each of us to live in in every moment and if we don't do that you end up in the worst of a war zone in ukraine uh dealing with the absolute brutality of humans to each other um, which we are fully capable of we know that so if you have a choice to be brutal or to be loving and caring and productive i'd rather go for the loving caring productive and make life a better place and be able to sit in a theater like this and to listen to somebody sing their heart out, absolutely gorgeous music um, that is also about something and is about positive affirmation of the best part of our human nature and not the worst, because they're both there. Um, and I'd rather be on the good side than the bad side. Howard, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun, lovely conversation. and. Maybe we'll do this again someday. Absolutely. And all the best with your new book. When's it coming out? Oh, you're, you're still your third. I'm still writing the, the yeah. very, the other two are out, Mozart and DePonte, um, well, actually called Meeting Mozart, and Beethoven Love, Opus 139. Um, they're out, but the Verdi, I'm hoping maybe next year at some point, maybe a year from now, it might be out if I'm lucky. I'm going to get my work done on time. <laughs> Thank you. We're looking forward to it. Thank you as well. Thank Pleasure. You. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks, Howard. See you at the opera. See you there, hopefully. <laughs> you know, I'm not an opera aficionado by any means, but I do enjoy it. I have seen several in Italy, in, uh, in Moscow, in Chicago, New York. And the thing about it is, is it is, it's a really sort of emotive style of theater, and it would be a shame to lose it. But it is also interesting to hear how. Uh, a fellow who sort of uh, struggled with a lot of communicative skills and and being able to comprehend things has has found his path through the emotive feelings and music of opera. 
And I also find it really inspiring because when you think of things that are so overwhelming, such as an opera or things that are so large that you think that they're incomprehensible, and yet you find that the writers and the, and those who are creating it are, you know, are coming from uh, challenging backgrounds and they're just, you know, they're learning how to write and they're trying to express. But the one thing that is so great is they're connecting uh, with others. They're connecting, communicating, and finding ways in which to do something. And that's what I love about this is that the connection of community. And speaking of community, if you love this episode as we did, then we, uh, we hope that you subscribe to our community, Believe in People. And thank you so much. Thanks, Kev. Thank you and stay connected through Believe in People. Bye-bye.